Sports at the University of the West Indies in Kingston. Uh, Cecil remains engaged in research, writing, and activism on a range of uh, issues to do with race, class, and gender, including reparations for African people. And he's published uh, very widely in many journals, um, Race and Class, Marxism Today, etc. But I just want to say two things about him. Many, many years ago, I read an article by uh, Cecil, I think I've reminded you of it, on the Nottingham Carnival, which, by the way, is the very best thing I've ever read on the Nottingham Carnival, because it gives the 18th century context and 19th century context. Really superb piece of work. And um, he also gave the Walter Rodney Memorial Lecture at the University of Warwick, I was away at the time, in 19, 2011, I think. So without much ado, I introduce Cecil. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to stand because um, at my age and stage, the juices flow a little bit better when I'm standing to, 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 to speak. Um, let me begin by saying that I am as honored as I am troubled to be on this stage. And I reminded and pointed out to the organizers respectfully on two occasions that um, given who this audience was likely to be, which is primarily Guyanese, that what we should be doing is allowing Professor Pat Rodney to tell the story of her being the wife and partner of Walter Rodney, who was no doubt at least as remarkable a husband and father as he was remarkable in all other respects of his life on the evidence that we have. Um, I'm glad that some things have happened since I made those points to um, allow her to speak in London so that I believe she was at SOAS the day before yesterday and, 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 and so on. So what I want to do is to shorten the time that's been allocated to me. I live in London. I publish stuff. I'm going to write up what I would have said today, and it will be available. So what I want to do is to speak very briefly about uh, Walter. And when uh, you have a published title, it says Walter Rodney on and against neocolonialism. And the on bit of that is about what Walter did in relation to theorizing neocolonialism, which is an extraordinarily important topic. It's a topic that names the way in which we are exploited and dominated in places like Guyana and and Jamaica and all of the Caribbean and all of Africa. Understanding that, Walter contributed alongside Kwame Nkrumah and um, Franz Fanon and Samir Amin and others a significant amount of theory. And he theorized not just at the nation-state level, places like Guyana, Jamaica, and Tanzania, but also at the global African level. And he wrote an extraordinarily important paper for the 1974 Sixth Pan-African Congress, which is, in fact, a definitive work on the nature and the politics of neocolonialism, on the way in which the class or class fraction, and I know black people don't like to hear about (laughs) class, because why are you coming with this Marxist thing? I know we're all brothers and sisters. I'm here to tell you that not a thing no gossip, 
and that unless we understand the class nature of the situation in which we find ourselves, we will be understanding far too little. Now, I want to do very few other things. The first of them is to start where I would have ended. I mean, to start again where I would have ended. And to say that I hear talk of Guyana being about to be awash with wealth arising from oil. And it looked to me as if the Guyanese ruling circle didn't bother to learn anything from Walter on that matter as on so much else. Because what Walter de where Walter is dealing with neocolonialism, he deals with the mechanisms of exploitation. And the principal one of those is foreign capital investment. And it looks like a good thing, but it's the principal way, the principal means by which they report places like Guyana. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that they pretend to put in money and they arrive at agreements with the people who are supposed to know better and who would know better if they'd read Walter. <laughs> and, and, and they just take it back via something called amortization and the tax regime. So within three years, everything that they have put in is paid back to them and the rest is total ripoff. After that, it looks like you own your oil, but apart from the pittance that they pay in royalties, not a thing not coming back. And it has place after place in the whole wide world where enough oil is being exploited out of the place. Sometimes the government doesn't even know how much is taken. That applies to Trinidad. So, Walter's work is massively, massively relevant. And we need to know that. And Guyanese first, because that's where the bowels of that place is where he came from, the Guyanese working class, and that was one of his strengths. He'd be built on and came out of that wonderful foundation. And then, right, I say that I'm going to speak briefly, so I am going to speak briefly. <laughs> In, if I was doing the talk, I would talk about how he encountered and helped us to understand Jamaica, Guyana, and Tanzania. Not going to do it. Um, I would tell you what he did in relation to understanding global Africa for the Sixth Pan African or at the Sixth Pan African Congress, which he wasn't at. He wrote a paper that I've already mentioned, which everybody should read because it tells us about the class fraction that runs Africa that are pathetic, and he quotes um, Fanon in, in this regard, they're in a way working abroad at the same time as was um, Nkrumah. So, um, understanding that. And then I would have talked about his encounter near the end of his life. That's where his life ended. That's where his life was brutally ended by people who should have known better, who planned his death along with the Americans and laughed while they were doing it. And I'm not exaggerating. Those of us who were interested in Walter knew that this from the moment he died, but it's now documented in the historic um, inquiry into his death, and every self-respecting Guyanese and every self-respecting African and Af um, Indo-Guyanese and others worldwide, people should know how Walter was eliminated and why. Okay, so 
all of that story has to be told. I'm going to write up the paper, finish writing up <laughs> the paper that I would have delivered. Okay. But the time today really needs as much as possible to yeah. be allocated to his widow, right. Dr. Patricia Rodney. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you, Cecil. Have I got a microphone? Thank you, Cecil. Brilliant to say that. Esther Stanford Kosai. 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 It's a tricky one, don't worry. Esther Stanford Kosai is a pan Africanist community advocate specializing in the critical legal praxis of law as resistance and reparationist. She's also an interdisciplinary law and history scholar activist who has charted new grounds in the theory and practice of Pan-African reparations for global justice. As a new abolitionist, Esther serves as the co-vice chair of the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe. And she also co-founded the Extinction Rebellion Internationalist Solidarity Network where she ensures that a reparatory justice approach to tackling genocide and ecocide is integrated in strategies to redress the climate and ecological crisis. Over to you, Esther. Thank you. And again, I'm, I'm really, truly honored to have been invited. Thank you, Juanita and Rod, for inviting me and to you, Dr. Patricia. And Elder Cecil, you've made it hard for me now. I have to <laughs> no, not, not deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> but I totally agree with you, and yeah. so I'm also going to sort of condense what I was going to say. Mm -hmm. um, and in the original lineup, I was uh, meant to be speaking last, which would have really given, we would have heard a lot more introduction to the great Walter Rodney. And so I'm not going to be doing much of that because my um, reflections are on the contemporary relevance of Walter Rodney and sharing decolonial lessons of pan-African reparation struggle against ecocide for global justice. So what I really wanted to just talk about was how Rodney's legacy lives on today in some of those who are, if you like, inheritors of that legacy and how we are trying to build on his great works. And of course, we would have had much more of an introduction, but we will be hearing um, much more after I've spoken. So whilst, I mean, you know, talking about ecocide, this is a, a term that is sort of, a modern term that really began to be popularized in the 1970s. So whilst it, it might be a term that people are not particularly familiar with and wasn't particularly used in the time that Walter Rodney was alive, I think it's particularly relevant to examining his legacy and especially reflecting on the lessons um, of those of us who are reparationists. So while Walter Rodney would not typically be regarded as an environmentalist, or even an ecologist. Nevertheless, what he has written in his extensive works reveal a special sensitivity to environmental and ecological issues. And I think primarily in how Europe underdeveloped Africa and a lot of his other research and writings, 
he sort of analyzes the process of colonization, but also ecocide, what today we would call ecocide, the environmental destruction. So it wasn't just about taking people out of Africa in terms of enslavement, but it was also about what was the environmental impact? How did that impact on Africa and global African people or global Africa and the rest of humanity? And that's really what Walter's um, work seeks to do. And those of us who are organizing now, building on from that. See, when we talk about colonization or even neo-colonization, many people do not see within that the process of ecological destruction that actually harms not only us as people, but also our planet and environment. So when we're talking about ecocide, ecocide derives from the Greek oikos, meaning home or house, and the Latin sedere, meaning to strike down, demolish, or kill, literally meaning the killing of our home. Ecocide is therefore the extensive damage to, destruction of, and loss of ecosystems of a given territory, whether by human agency or other causes, to such an extent that peaceful enjoyment by the inhabitants has been or will be severely diminished. So the impact of colonization and how Europe has underdeveloped Africa has resulted in an unjust system, a global world order, that now is bringing not only us as African people, indigenous people, Asian people, and all other members of the human family, but also our planet literally to the brink of a crisis. Uh, some have referred to it as a climate and ecological emergency. And as a reparationist, I'm very much concerned with the impact of this history on our present. Um, those of us who are uh, sort of reparationists in, in the UK, we have been championing the notion of what a lot of what has been theorized and analyzed, uh, we refer to as the Ma'angamizi which is a key Swahili term that basically means the African Holocaust and continuum of chattel, colonial, and neo-colonial forms of enslavement and everything else that goes in the, between that. And so this notion of the damage, the damage that has been sustained by us <coughs> as Africans, people of African heritage, indigenous peoples of the earth, uh, it was posited at the uh, 1993 Abuja conference, which was the first Pan-African conference on reparations for chattel enslavement, colonization, and neo-colonization, that the damage sustained by the African peoples is not a thing of the past, but is painfully manifested in the damaged lives of contemporary Africans, from Harlem to Harare, in the damaged economies of the black world, from Guinea to Guyana, from Somalia to Suriname. Today we can see that as a result of this unjust system and world order, there is now the notion of a resource curse, an increasing extractivism, okay, which began with the plundering of Africa in the 19th century, the plundering of the African ecosystem, the environment, but also in terms of the continent, of its human resources, our people. 
who have been trafficked and dispersed all around the world. So that is a reparations question. And when we're now looking from a historical perspective on the root causes and the origins of this crisis that is actually impacting on the so-called black majority world the most and will do, including those people who are living in the so-called Caribbean, especially the islands, mm. which actually are predicted to not be there mm -hmm. if the temperatures keep rising mm -hmm. beyond yep, 1.5 mm -hmm. degrees Celsius. So within 50 to 100 years, these islands could go. Mm -hmm. So whereas we have been taken out of our homelands as a result of this process of extraction and extractivism, <clears throat> and then we've been forced to settle and we've made homes because we are a resilient people and we evolve and so forth, but then now look at what is facing us. And these are the kind of um, fundamental questions as reparationists that we face. What is the harm that has been done? And how do we first of all stop the harm and then effectively repair the damage? So as a reparationist for us, and in particular I speak uh, on behalf of the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe, as well as something called the Stop the Mangamizi We Charge Genocide Ecocide campaign. So we're not speaking for all reparationists, but we have a particular approach. And we are very much inspired and um, encouraged by the legacy of Walter Rodney because he didn't just theorize. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a guerrilla intellectual. He went out amongst the people and he sought to also ensure that the ideas that he was theorizing about, how did you make those ideas a material force in order to bring about social change and transformation? And that is really, I think, the legacy that we have to grapple with. How it's nice to sit here and hear about what he has done, but how are we taking that into our liberty mm -hmm. to transform our world today. And for me, one of the movements that offers the most promise for that is what we refer to as a reparations movement. And some of us in Parco theorize as the uh, international social movement for African reparations, which is part of a wider internationalist movement of other peoples, non-African peoples, who are also struggling um, in terms of their own histories of colonization and imperialism, neo-colonization domi and domination, etc. And so that African movement is part of a wider internationalist movement. And one of the things that we have been doing as PARCO is looking at how do we transform our world. So obviously, it cannot just be about financial compensation, which is what most people think of when they think about reparations. But actually, financial compensation, as important as it is, is only one aspect of reparations, even under so-called international law. Um, the first principle being about restitution. You know, how do we have full restitution of this kind of extraction of not only our labor, but our resources, and the impact of that today. How do we have effective compensation? Then there is rehabilitation. What about the harm that has been done to us as people? The harm in terms of this notion of black inferiority, white superiority, and everything that goes in between that, and the, this sort of fracture to our human relations. Then there are notions of satisfaction, which are symbolic reparations. 
And finally, the most important are the guarantees of non-repetition, which is how do we ensure that we stop the harm and ensure that we can truly have a post-reparations global order. And that is a civilizational quest. So one of the things that we have been seeking to do is in terms of building wider alliances. And I will conclude in terms of how we have sought to um, actualize that. So some of you may have been, especially if you're here in the UK, um, you can't perhaps escape this notion, this movement called Extinction Rebellion. Have people heard of it? Yeah. I know it's been a nuisance to some people, okay? But largely European, i.e. so-called white people, middle-class originated movement that are saying, you know, the climate and ecological emergency is the number one issue that faces us. So how do I, as an African reparationist, come to find a common cause with some of these people who quite clearly haven't had the same experiences as, as many of our people? But why we have joined with them is because we have found common cause in terms of this struggle against ecocide which is an aspect of this colonization. And inherent within ecocide is genocide, the destruction of peoples. And there is actually a notion of cultural ecocide. Because if our environment is destroyed, then we cannot live, we cannot function, we cannot effectively grow our food, we cannot effectively build our communities. Hence why we are now seeing Africans literally die to cross the Mediterranean, because conditions of life have become so untenable and unbearable as a result of the contemporary system that we are facing today. And so we found this common cause with them because what part of Extinction Rebellion have been advocating is not only the need to stop the ecocide, but we need to look at how do we now repair the harm that has been done to people and planet. And this thinking has been championed by us as the African organizers who formed a, a solidarity network and now championing this notion of planet repairs. Because there's also this notion of the ecological debt. We've done a lot of theorization about the economic debt, the social debt, the cultural debt, the political debt, but the economic debt. Because even if we see reparations as being about compensation, there's going to be no compensation on a dead or dying planet for us to enjoy. So that then becomes a number one priority in terms of stopping the harm and ensuring that we can bring about a post-reparations global order that actually involves a repaired humanity, a new man, a new woman, a new humanity, which is also part of the historic challenge that has been advocated. And that's where I'd really like to leave us in terms of this vision of the post-African reparations world order cannot just be about us putting plasters on this system. It has to bring about an end to the current system, an end to the current, and, and Walter Rodney spoke about the responsibility of Africans to understand the system and overthrow it. Yeah. To overthrow it, though, to replace it with what? a new humanity, a new reality that we refer to as Ubuntu Dunia, which is basically a, a decolonial notion of a, of a multipolar world, 
where the best of humanity is able to live and we live in accordance with our indigenous principles of having respect for our earth, not taking more than we need, eliminating this capitalistic system and the extractivism and kind of despoilation and plunder of our very even human and spiritual nature as human beings. And that is our challenge and one of the things we've been seeking to do by even utilising the notion of groundings that we've taken into Extinction Rebellion by now developing something called the Global Justice Rebellion Roadshow, which has particularly been inspired by Rodney. And we've taken into this largely what's seen as a white-led movement his ideas around how we have to go to the people. If we want to make change, we have to go to the people. We have to humble ourselves as guerrilla intellectuals and learn from them so that we can fashion those solutions together. And I'll end there. Thank you. Professor Pat Patricia Rodney, PhD in Sociology at the University of Toronto. She's lived and worked in Guyana, England, Tanzania, Barbados, Canada, and the United States. She's here um, primarily to give the annual Walter Rodney Memorial Lecture at the University of Warwick, which takes place next Tuesday. During her 15-year tenure at Morehouse School of Medicine, she was promoted to Professor, Assistant Dean for Public Health Education, and Director of the Master's Program in Public Health. In public health. She's published a book, The Caribbean State Healthcare and Women, and edited two special issues of the American Journal of Health Studies on the health of women of color. And she's authored many academic journals. She is the recipient of many awards and recognitions for her commitment to women's health and gender equity. She was recently selected by the United Nations Population Fund as one of the 100 champions in the arena of sexual and reproductive health and gender equality. Dr. Rodney is also the CEO of the Walter Rodney Foundation, WRF. Please go Google it. It's very easy to, to, to be in contact with the just type in Walter Rodney Foundation, um, which was formed by the Rodney family in 2006 and is headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. The, the Walter Rodney Foundation is committed to the sharing the life and works of Walter Rodney with students, scholars, and community activists around the world. I give you Pat Rodney. <laughs> Good evening, everyone, and thanks for coming. I think this is the first time that I'm speaking mainly to Guyanese audience. Um, and I want to say thank you for inviting me. Um, there are a couple of people I would like to acknowledge. Um, I want to acknowledge Al Parks. Uh, Al knew Walter before I did. They grew up together. Al is in the audience visiting from Germany. <laughs> I also want to acknowledge some high school friends of mine. 
And I'm going to call you by your maiden name because my <laughs> name was Patricia Henry before I became Rodney. Jazzy Payne, Cicely Wills, please stand so everybody can see you. Judy Hampstead. And I have to mention Aubrey, because I knew you when you were trying to tackle um, Cicely. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) we go back a long way, and it was really nice to catch up, especially with Cicely. I'd caught up with Jazzy before. And I also want to acknowledge my hosts, where I've been singing for the last 10 days um, for putting up with me for that long (laughs) and to David and everybody. Um, I'm supposed to talk about... Oh, microphone, sorry. Sorry. My theme is supposed to be Walter Rodney, past, present, and future. Walter Rodney's legacy, past, present, and future. It's not enough time for me to cover everything, so I'm I'm going to try to draw a picture for you. Um, This year, Walter Rodney would have been 77 years old. I am 77. I'm a month older than him. And my daughters used to say, I cradle snatch. (laughs) Um, Walter never got to see his children grow up. He was assassinated when he was 38 years old. My oldest son, Shaka, was 13, Kanini, 10, and Asha, 8. He never got a chance to meet his grandchildren, Asia, Kwesi Anthony, Kai, Sky, and Apedua. As you know, Walter Rodney was assassinated on a Friday, June the 13th, 1980. And I want to start by using a quote from George Lamming. Walter Rodney's legacy is a living example, one that is needed today more than ever. After 34 years, there's finally a commission of inquiry into June the 13th, 1980. It is an opportunity to ask ourselves why younger generations know little, if anything, of who Walter Rodney was and what he stood for. Why copies of his children's books, Kofi Badu out of Africa and Lakshmi out of India, and there were other plans, there were a series of books, are not available in libraries or schools in Guyana. Whether the things that Rodney fought for have really been achieved today, and what our responsibilities in the face of this remind ourselves why race continues to be an easy bogeyman to trot out. Why is it important to remind ourselves that a commission inquiry is not just about finding out what happened. We must also ask ourselves what it means to ask these questions from the vantage point of our present, and we must strongly resist those who would attempt to attach themselves 
to his legacy in order to reap narrow political dividends in the present. Dividends that have nothing to do with healing, reconciliation, and social and economic transformation. Dividends that Rodney ultimately gave his life to oppose. And I'm going to talk about the process of the Commission on Inquiry and also why Rodney was killed. I think Rodney was killed because he was promoting um, a racial rebuilding, um, a healing of the Guyanese working people, Indian and black people, and that was dangerous to the state apparatus. Um, after Rodney Walter was killed, there was never an inquiry into his debt. Um, in 1988, President Hoyt did an inquest, and the inquest, um, the result of the inquest said that Rodney died by, Rodney either died by accident or misadventure. I don't know if you know what misadventure means, um, but economically what happened was if you have a clause saying misadventure, it means that the insurance company would never pay your life policy, and that's what happened. So we were not only deprived of him and his earning power and his role as a father and husband, but also financially, the family has never gotten a life insurance policy. Um, According to the International Commission of Jurists who visited Guyana in 1998, they said, they said, and I quote, that the inquest was mar marred by great defects, that the inquest was not a proper inquest done, or else they would not have come up with those conclusions. Again, in, the family has always called for an inquiry. From the day he was killed, we called for an inquiry. In 1992, under the People's Progressive Party, we again called um, for an inquest into his debt. I spoke myself to the president at that time because I was in Guyana in attending an international conference on Walter. And it was agreed that, yes, we will have a commission inquiry. By the time I got back to Atlanta, I don't know what happened, but it was squashed. Um, in 1992, my son Shaka Rodney did a one-week hunger strike in Guyana to bring attention to his father's assassination. And I use the word assassination deliberately because he was assassinated. He wasn't murdered. He wasn't killed. He just didn't die. He was assassinated. And the Commission of Inquiry report will, pr will prove that. Um, finally, in 2013, I was approached by President Ramatar to find out if I was still interested in a commission of inquiry. I said I'd never lost interest. That was always the point. The family needed to know. And so in 2014, the commission was formed. It took 
about six months to find competent lawyers, not just competent lawyers, but also people have the time to do a commission of inquiry. It takes a lot of time and research. Three commissioners were finally selected. Um, Sir, Sir Richard Cheltenham, um, who was the chair of the commission, Mrs. Jacqueline Samuels-Brown, um, a Jamaican, Sir Richard is Barbadian, and Mr. Sitna Jairam, who is a Trinidadian. I think he's Guyanese Trinidadian. They were very competent people. They were all Queen's Councils. They, during the commission, the commission met for about two years. In, they spent time doing the research, compiling, getting in touch with witnesses. They were able to interview 33 witnesses, including myself, and two in-camera witnesses. Um, they were able to view what information was available. It's quite strange that every document related to Walter Rodney could not be found. It disappeared, totally. Somebody said there was a flood, and um, the documents got but there were no documents available for Rodney during that period when he was harassed, beaten, and finally assassinated. The commission concluded its work. Well, the government changed, as you know, and the commission of inquiry was aborted. Um, the commissioners were able to with the evidence they have, produce a report. And the, the report is available online, and I could give you um, how to get the report. The report was issued to the government in 2016. Um, the first thing, Guyanese are always polite people. <laughs> the, I've heard that throughout the Caribbean, hope Guyanese are very polite. When the commission was ready to hand over the report to the current president, he was not there to accept it, which is, is a normal formality that any head of state would do. He was not present. He, they were told these are senior people, more senior than he is, to hand over the report to a secretary. The report was handed to a secretary, and they had to leave Guyana very unceremoniously. Um, the report then was passed from different people, and then finally the government acknowledged the report. They acknowledged it. They never accepted the report. So the report is somewhere lying on a shelf. Um, the, re the report is quite explicit on who killed Rodney. The report included a finding that the actual assassin Gregory Smith was not acting alone, mm -hmm. but rather was axed and abetted by the Guyana Police Force, the Guyana Defense Force, and the then political directorate in the killing of Dr. Walter Rodney. The, the, the commission described the killing as a state-organized assassination mm -hmm with the knowledge of Prime Minister Forbes Burnham, and that's on page 142 of the report. And I encourage people to report, to read the report. What has been distressing for me is that 
very decent people have remained silent. Mm -hmm. And that is how we come to the position we're in. And you know, when people are talking about uh, President Trump, I have seen that happen in Guyana. What Trump is doing is exactly what Burnham did. And people kept silent. And it's almost like a child. If you give them a foot, they take a yard. They, ch they check the boundaries. And I saw that happening. And people saw it, but they did nothing about it. Either because they benefited from it. I, I know some people had been scared. Um, but we all have to stand up for truth. Because what do we tell our grandchildren? My little granddaughter, the youngest one, she's three years old, and they all ask about their grandfather. Why would somebody kill my granddad? I miss my granddad. Why would somebody just kill him like that? And we have to explain in the simplest terms about what your granddad, the kind of work your granddad was doing um, to help ordinary people seek a better life. Um, so in terms of what we have called for, the family coming out of the COI report, we have said that the government need to release, officially release the COI report. And that's where your role comes in, in terms of pressuring the government. Where is the report? Why don't they want to, re to, to release the report? If they say Burnham didn't kill, kill Rodney, then they should release the report. Why are they hiding it from people? The commission also made a, a number of recommendations about documentation and how you keep documents, um, which is a good recommendation because documents were terribly kept and is, if you go to the archives in Guyana, it's terrible, about how records should be kept. Change the manner. We're demanding that the death certificate be changed. It had also on the death certificate that Rodney was unemployed. <coughs> you didn't employ him, but he wasn't unemployed. His, his profession couldn't be unemployed. How could you put that on a death certificate? So that's what the death certificate said. One, he was unemployed, profession. And two, that he, was, he died by misadventure. Um, so, yeah, change his profession on that death certificate. Overturn the conviction of Donald Rodney mm -hmm. and expunge any related criminal history. I don't know how many of you know that Donald was charged. That charge has never been lifted. The former government wanted to pardon Donald, and Donald said, no, I don't want a pardon. I did not do anything. So... We're calling on the overturned conviction of Donald Rodney. Provide reparations to the Rodney family and Donald Rodney. Rodney was killed at the highest length of his profession. He was 38 years old. I am 77. Rodney didn't have a pension. Rodney was never sick. So they need to compensate the family in some way or other. Provide a truthful account to the people of Guyana. People of Guyana deserve better. But the people of Guyana have to demand it. Right? 
provides students and leaders with Rodney's teachings and writings a disgrace that when I go to the continent, anywhere on the continent I go, every single person who is a farmer, taxi driver, they know Rodney. Mm-hmm. They had to read how Europe on the development and um, develop as undergraduate students. That most of them say, you know, I thought Rodney was African. And he was. He was. He was. <laughs> yes. He is and was. Um, so that is for the the commission of inquiry. Uh, next, I want to go to what we have done since Rodney's death in terms of the family. Um, and getting when we when I left Barbados with my three children. Rodney was killed on the 13th. The government refused to release his body because they had put out this news report that an unidentified man had been murdered because that's how they planned it. They planned it so his head would be knocked off. So they they put out their own media even before they dropped a lot of uh, pamphlets outside my house the next morning um, to say that it's unidentified. So they had to cover themselves. They had to withhold the body. And the body was so badly beginning to decompose, which was deliberate, um, that I moved it from one funeral parlor to another. And the, the person who took on Bering Rodney was a school friend of his at Queen's College. And he said to me, Mrs. Rodney, normally I would never take a body in this condition. It's only because of Walter. Because what they had done, I went to the mortuary to see where they had put his body. And they had him at the bottom, and they had other bodies thrown on top of him, and the fridge was not working. So we had to have um, a covered coffin. But the thing that spooked them, Walter's face was not damaged. It had some burn marks, but I knew it was Walter. Everybody knew it was Walter Rodney. So their own lies um, backfired on them. So when I left Barbados, I left Barbados, we had a memorial service before we had a funeral because they wouldn't release the body. And I said we didn't need the body to honor my husband. They could keep it because they needed it more than we needed it. Anyway, finally they handed over the body. He was buried. And the children and I, two friends from Barbados, George Lamin and Margaret Hope, came and took myself and the children to Barbados. I hadn't made any plans what I would do. I didn't know what I would do. I just knew I could not stay in Guyana. Uh, because it wasn't safe. And I realized it wasn't safe because when I got to Barbados, Prime Minister Burnham called up Prime Minister Tom Adams to tell him he was harboring the enemy. Me and three small children were the enemy. So even in Barbados, the Barbadians have to provide security while I was in Barbados um, because they wanted to cover themselves. So... The, the harassment of the Rodney family didn't stop with just killing Rodney, it continued. So 
in Barbados, I stayed in Barbados for nine years. And I think it's the best choice I made because both Walter and I had discussed that we wanted our children, whatever happened, to grow up in the Caribbean, to have an identity, which is very important. I've seen the tragedies of kids who are brought up other places. They, they don't know who they are. And so it was important. It was also a chance for us to begin to heal um, for me to to get the children back in school and to, to have some normalcy in our lives. Um, one of the things that happened while I was in Ghana, um, because we had moved around so much, I had moved around with the children in Walter, I was never able to finish my first degree. I'd start, stop, start, stop. So when I got to Guyana, I was working with the Darla, Dar, um, I sing Dar Salaam. I was working with the Georgetown City Council in charge of an early childhood development daycare center. And I took the opportunity while I was in Guyana to go to the University of Guyana, where I did a diploma in social work. And then the university, because the University of Ghana had separated itself from the University of the West Indies. It was an independent university. In order to do the degree program in social work, one had to go to Jamaica. And this was the first time students were going on this particular arrangement. So two students were selected from that program, myself and another. Uh, person to go to Jamaica to finish up. And it's luckily, I'm so happy that I, while I was away from Guyana, my parents, Walter's parents, and Walter looked after the children. So I spent a year in Jamaica. So in Barbados, that I was able to get a job where I could be at home by the time the children had finished school. If I still, because I did nursing here in England, if I was still doing nursing, then the hours would have been very problematic. So I was glad I was able to do that um, to make sure that my children had some kind of pattern in their lives. Um, we stayed in Barbados for nine years and then I emigrated to Canada. And it's in Canada that I continued my studies. Um, and then People ask me several times why you took so long to start a foundation. And my priority was my children, raising my children as a single parent, um, finding a job, and continuing my own self-development as a woman. Because that we know that several times when you're with men who are committed to politics or, or, or activism, that your work gets left undone. Mm -hmm. And so after Walter was killed, I was determined that I would continue my own education. And so the children were not old enough for us to begin to tackle Walter's work. And that vacuum allowed a lot of people to take ownership of my husband's work. They work all over that's being plagiarized. Mm. Um, and people who have not 
paid us our royalties, and this goes to Africa all over. So one of the first things we did was to try to assemble the papers in one place. And that was not as easy as I thought it would be, because we had to smuggle his papers out of Guyana. Um, I'm sure some of it was destroyed. People had to bring it out for us, because if the government knew we were taken out, it would be problems. So it was smuggled out of Guyana and brought to me in Barbados. I couldn't keep them because they would deteriorate. So a friend offered to take them up to the US and look after them. And then subsequently I learned, and this person was an academic, subsequently I learned that a person was using Walter's papers um, for his own publications or giving his graduate students. And this, is, this book is a product of it, The Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution, Walter was very, I've never seen anybody take such precise notes. Walter was preparing a course on the Russian Revolution to teach students in Tanzania, a course. And he never taught the course because he was writing how Europe on the developed Africa. So he was focused on this rather than. And the real Russian Revolution was the Russian Revolution from a third world perspective. That is what he was writing about. So this professor gave this graduate student, Kelly, Dr. Kelly, this manuscript, it was a manuscript, it was notes, um, to work on. When we heard that the papers were being used, we had to move them again from there, keep them in another temporary place, and find a place that we felt comfortable with giving the papers, donating the papers. So years after, I met Dr. Kelly, and we came to an agreement where we would, he, because he had done a lot of work on bringing it towards a text, that we would work together and produce the Russian Revolution. So it's a view from the third world. Um, the papers finally, when I, I was living in Canada and I was recruited from Canada to Atlanta to help develop the first public health program in a historically black college and university. And once I was settled in Atlanta and talked to the archivist who knew Rodney's work because she was the archivist at Howard University uh, about placing the papers at the AUC Center, the Atlanta University Center, Woodruff Library. So we did, donated the papers to those archives. And the reason, because several universities approached us about buying the papers. I didn't want to sell the papers. I wanted to make sure that we were being used by people who were interested and can learn from Rodney's scholarship. So that was a deliberate attempt to donate the papers to a black institution. And the Atlanta University Center covers five uh, undergraduate and graduate schools. So it's quite a large consortium of universities. So we donated the papers to the Woodruff Library. And on the 
donation of the papers, we started the Walter Rodney Symposium, which we've just completed the 16th year of the symposium. And we do it not around when he was assassinated. We deliberately do it on the week of his birth. So some days, sometimes it may fall on actually his birthday or before. And my daughter, Asha, who's the youngest, her birthday is on the 22nd of March. Walt is the 23rd. And my second daughter, Kanini, she's the 28th of March. So that March month has a lot of meaning to our family. Um, and as David told you, the foundation is committed to sharing the life and legacy with, of Walter Rodney with students, scholars, and community activists. And all our symposia involve students. We always have a student panel. We always have community activists and academics. Because I'm not just interested in academics coming to add another thing to their CV. <laughs> I want his work to be interrogated. How do we take Rodney's work and move forward? We can't just talk about we knew Rodney at this particular time. What have you done with his work? And that's what we encourage um, people to do. So the foundation, the Walter Rodney's paper is the largest comprehensive collection of writings, speeches, correspondence, photographs, documents, um, unpublished, because unpublished papers, we are discovering everything, lots of new things in the collection. Somebody just gave me, out of Barbados, his handwritten history notes for the three years he was at Mona. Mm -hmm. All three years is his history notes. So that's one of the things we ask people to donate to the to the archives because it's not just to sit there it's for students to come and do research. Uh, we just had a, a, a scholar out of France, originally from I think it's Guinea-Bissau, who's done his thesis on Walter Rodney, Professor Amzat. Um, we also publish three peer-reviewed journals, Groundings. Pan-Africanism and Critical Theory. Um, we also have an important project we're working on called the Legacy Project. And that Legacy Project is about collecting stories about people who encountered Rodney or people whose work has had an impact on their lives. And I meet people every day uh, saying, I, I didn't know Rodney, but I read his book and this is it's changed my life so we that's a project that we we're working on we also have the Walter Rodney speaker series which is a semester long course for graduate undergraduate students but we invite community people to come in and we have a variety of lectures who talk on the work of Rodney and its influence in their own work um, in 2020, Angela Davis will be, we usually have a two-day symposium. In 2020, we're going to have a one-day um, public lecture by Angela Davis and then a smaller 
fundraising event which Angela has agreed to do for us and she's been a uh, friend forever. Um, I, I think I'm going to stop there for questions. Thank you very much. Jewish uh, chap was my um, professor at the time, 
and we had to read um, how Europe and it developed Africa. And it changed and changed my life and gave me a consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I have a sense now that kind of consciousness doesn't exist for the young uh, generation. I don't know, maybe it's because I'm out of date but I, I wonder, maybe living in America, you you, it's, you probably don't have that sort of experience mm -hmm. as I think as uh, somebody from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose my question is, after that detour, is do you feel that that legacy of Rodney making the connection mm -hmm. with the African diaspora in his scholarship, in mm -hmm. his political activism, is still exists? Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, 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 yes. <coughs> There's one more question. work, whether his legacy still continues. I think because times have gotten so hard that there's a resurgence of Rodney's work. I was talking to uh, a bookstore and a man said, I can't keep his books. They go so quickly. His ideas, and it's amazing when people say, Rodney never co covered gender. I said, go back and read it again. 
<laughs> he didn't cover this. I said, you go and read. And every time I read it, I'm amazed by his capacity to touch so many things. And he talked about women's work, women's role, women in the struggle. And he didn't just talk about it. My relationship with Walter was part of that. You know, I remember living in Jamaica. We didn't have a helper. So Chaka was, my son was about two years. And um, Walter used to look after him during the day. And I worked night duty. So he would take care of the baby during the day when he didn't have to go to class. And I would look after him at night. And people would tell you when Walter went groundings with Rasta at night or Sunday morning, he would take Shaka. If I was there, I would go along. In Guyana, when he went visiting families of countries, we, the bottom houses, we would go. The children, we would go. So it's part of who Rodney was. And lots of people in this audience know Walter. Walter loved life. He loved to party. I tell children, because sometimes young people think, and the way intellectuals talk about Rodney, it's almost like he wasn't a human being. Rodney was an ordinary person who perhaps did extraordinary things for his short period on this earth. He was a light you know, that burned brightly and then was taken away from us. And I tell kids, you know, his mom said he was very naughty when he was growing up. My son was very happy to hear that, that his father got into lots of trouble because he got into lots of trouble. So to the humanistic way in understanding Rodney, when you read his work, you understand that he came from a working class family and it was committed to working peoples. He saw how his family struggled to educate himself, his brother and his sister. Walter was bright, so he got the opportunity to go to Queen's College, to go to UE, to come to Source, but he never forgot where he came from. I remember somebody coming to our house in Georgetown, a friend of my father's who was a union man and very, you know, snobbish. And Walter was in the yard, our yard. He was building a, um, a dollhouse for the children at the time. And this man passed Walter because he thought Walter was the laborer or the gardener. <laughs> and he went, boy. yeah, yes, he went inside <laughs> to my father and he said, Freddie, I, I come here, you don't introduce me to your son-in-law. And my dad said, you just passed him there. <laughs> Walter used to ride my dad's bicycle. I remember one time he was on a, a, a ferry giving out day clean, the WPSP, and a man said, I am buying no stupid day clean. Now Rodney, his wife, does work and support him. <laughs> because Walter wasn't allowed to work. And so I worked. And then when I came, I went off to UE, as I said, and came back to Guyana. And they said I was overqualified for my job. So I couldn't get that job back. And then I applied for three other jobs, and I would do the interview, and they would say, yes, you got the job. And by the time you walk to that door, I'll get another call and say, sorry, Mrs. Rodney, but we can't give you this job. And that was at 
CARICOM, Booker Sugar Estate, and then the final one was at the University of Ghana. I was on this table being interviewed by a dozen people, and coming to the end, this was the last question of the interview, the registrar said, uh, Mrs. Ronnie, I'd like you to tell us about the political work your husband is doing. And I said, I'm sorry, you're interviewing me, not my husband. And he said, the vice chancellor said, you have to answer the question. And I said, well, I refuse to answer the question. And so they said, the interview is over. And they put a X through my <laughs> file and said she's never to be employed at the university. So there were two of us not allowed, two skilled people who were not allowed to work in a country we were born in. We weren't foreigners, you know. We were born in that country. Um, and that's a long way of answering your question, sorry. And the other question about uh, Michelle. Yes, the Walter Rodney Avenue um, was created by a number of friends. Um, and under the last administration, um, they used to take care of the avenue, right? The avenue would be swept, grass cut, things fixed. Um, nothing has been done since. Even the grave site is in a terrible way. Um, and I think you could engage youth wherever you are. The plan was with that avenue to have cultural events to raise awareness about Rodney's work. I wish you good luck doing it under this administration. I doubt whether you'll be allowed to do it. We had adopted the school that Walter had gone to, St. Stephen's School, and we used to send books, and I want to bring honor and praise. And Daya, she worked with us on that project. And it, you know that, too, was stopped politically. Um, so children in Ghana don't know who Rodney is. The books Kofi Badu and Lakshmi were deliberately written. There were stories that my husband used to tell our kids um, about how Africans came to Guyana, how Indians came to Guyana. So if you know somebody's history and culture, then you're not afraid of them. You need to understand self before you understand others, and that is what he attempted to do. But the government stopped the radio series. They said, first they said Rodney couldn't read on the radio because they didn't want people to hear his voice. So somebody else was given the task of reading the stories, and then the stories upset them. And so, yes, so eventually we were able to publish those three books. But Walter's plan was to do a, a series of five of all the peoples who came to Guyana, and he was going to do a separate book on the indigenous people, because they didn't come. They were there. We mm -hmm. found them there. So that was the whole plan. We still, hopefully, will be able to publish those at some future date, but Kofi, Badu and Lakshmi, we're going to be a, do a republication of those. And I want you to see, we went to, uh, we have this collaboration with Verso Press. I'm very pleased because what was happening is that Rodney's work was being pirated. And so we thought that if we go with one press, we're better able to 
not, that's not to say it's not going to be the same thing is not going to be happen but we want people to be familiar with the new the new publications and um, the new additions to all these publications I hope that answers your question Michelle. Somebody else back has a Okay, so I have reached. Can we have one perspective here? Here we are. Hi, this is Rodney. I'm Ruth Lynch. Ruth, Ruth, please wait for the mic. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sorry to put it like this. My name is Ruth Lynch, and our families knew each other when you were there. I'm the same age as Kanini. Wow. So I was at Queen's College when Kanini was at Bishop's. Shaq uh -huh. uh, was a year ahead of me. My perspective is slightly different. Mm -hmm. We were the kids of that time mm -hmm. when this incident happened. The night before this incident happened, we were at a childhood birthday party. Yes. I remember the car coming to pick those kids up. We didn't know what had happened. Yes. They just left. The next morning, it was being whispered all over that this had happened, but we didn't have the information. A lot of this information was, the adults were talking about it. But we, the kids, there's always hush-hush. We sort of heard some of the information. We certainly didn't have all the information you gave us. And I just want to thank you for being able to bring those kids up in this atmosphere. I know a lot of people didn't talk. You brought it up because they were so scared. And we felt it as kids. So I just wanted you to know that we, as kids, who went through this, there were a lot of unanswered questions, which we still don't know about. And I would encourage you to get your kids of my era and younger to really read all this stuff and find out what actually happened because we never knew. Mm -hmm. That's all. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so I'm coming to Richard and then I'm coming to you and then we'll do another round. Hey, you're amazing. Sure. Um, yes. Rodney. I actually remember where I was when he died. It was a car of Camden down the street. Mm -hmm. um, I was very, uh, I was very active, politically active and um, quite young, but aware of politics and the, um, the implication of politics at a very young age. But the, what the question I want to put is to my gentleman there. <laughs> yes, you, yes. He talked about, um, he spoke already about exploitation. Mm -hmm. And the implication of Guyana now getting oil mm -hmm. and the, the position of exploitation and mm -hmm. mm -hmm. What would be your suggestion to avoid it's or manage? We can't avoid it, but we manage those exploitation. Mm -hmm. And this young lady here again, Esther. Esther? Mm -hmm. Esther, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm 62 years of age and I've been hearing so much talk about. Um, or history and slavery, etc. Don't you think it's time that we start looking at a different focus mm -hmm. to get a unity amongst our people so that we can then, we don't want to depend on anyone to get us out of where we are, but we should be the one to work towards getting ourselves out from where we are. Because nobody would help us, nobody would come to support us. And reparation, for instance, it's a good idea. But the struggle that we're going to go through to get it, we can use that energy to get ourselves together and take, get ourselves out from it. I always tell this analogy that if God decided to flood the earth again, 
same PNC mm -hmm. who murdered Walter mm -hmm. and the brother who just spoke mm -hmm. and who said that his party has betrayed him because mm -hmm. they're part of that entity mm -hmm. and they're committed they, mm -hmm. they haven't lifted a finger mm -hmm. about getting the Commission of Inquiry uh, issued um, in. it's an official government document mm -hmm. and it should be out there as an official government document and and Ward, the people who are the rump of Walter's party really have betrayed his memory on that one and have some questions to answer. Mm -hmm. um, on the oil business, um, I'm afraid mm -hmm. the horse may have bolted in relation to Guyana mm -hmm. because that neocolonial class signed up to mm -hmm. a company mm -hmm. that's actually unusually ruthless. They've even got them committed, as I understand mm -hmm. it, to pay for the um, initial um, exploration, yeah? Mm -hmm. So there's no bonanza mm -hmm. down the road. What should we do? It is a very difficult one so for African um, places because it looks as if we don't have any resources. Mm -hmm. What we have to, and, and, and therefore can't invest and think therefore that foreign capitalist investment is essential. What we in the third world, and it requires a, a certain progressive stance, we have to pool our resources to enable 
those pooled resources to be applied to developmental projects, including oil investment. We have to talk to people like the Norwegians who have a pile of oil money in, and there are others about investing on a completely different basis from the one in which capitalist um, companies do. We have our gold in all of those French um, African countries have their gold in Paris. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we Caribbean people still have any gold in London, but that stuff is ours and it's sitting in the wrong place. It needs to be mobilized for investment purposes. The, the, the capitalist entities that come and invest are not doing us a favor. Walter, people need to read Walter on this matter. And that's my recommendation. Mm -hmm. If you read Walter on this, you'll understand the importance of not getting into the trap of believing in the efficacy of foreign capitalist investment. Thank you. So I just want to comment on reparations, which has come up twice in the audience. And in fact, uh, the brother who, who last spoke about it you know, it's a good idea, but surely we should be focusing on essentially developing ourselves rather than waiting for someone to do something for us. That's how I'm hearing what you said. And I think that that's what the problem is when we uh, reduce reparations to this notion that we're begging for mm -hmm. something or that it's some act of charity that we're waiting on some, you know, people who will never actually do us charity to do it. Reparations is really a, a one word that describes a multitude of goals, including you know, the re-establishment of our sovereignty, the restoration of our resources, reclamation of our identity, our culture, our reconnection to our homeland Africa as a diaspora, satellites you know, in terms of people of African descent everywhere. So everything that you have said does fall under the rubric of a particular definition of reparations or framework that was advanced by somebody called Professor Chimwezu at the first Pan-African Conference on Reparations. And I just want to quickly read, he says, more important than any money is to be received, which is what most people reduce reparations to, um, he says, more fundamental than even any land to be recovered is the opportunity that the campaign, the reparations campaign, offers us for the rehabilitation of black people, by black people, for black people. Opportunities for the rehabilitation of our minds, our material condition, our collective reputations, our cultures, our memories, our self-respect, our religious and political traditions, and our family institutions. But first and foremost, for the rehabilitation of our minds, and our agency and our capacity to know that we have to be the change. Mm -hmm. We have to bring that about. So reparations is not outside, my brother, of what you have suggested. But equally, I'm going to go now to the, the, the elder who first raised it and was like, well, why not us? Everybody else has got reparations and why not us? Well, let's look at it. Okay, let's look at indigenous people. Let's look at Aboriginal people. Let's even look at Jewish people, which is the seminal case. The first act of reparations that Jewish people instituted with allied powers, forces, is the establishment of a state of Israel. Mm -hmm. And all the compensation money goes towards bolstering 
that thing and its economic, military, political might, and we're not going to comment on what that represents in terms of geopolitics today, vis-a-vis -vis Palestine and everything else. Aboriginal people haven't had Australia back. Indigenous peoples of the Americas who've received money are still on reservations. Okay, so if that's all we want, then that in itself is not going to fulfill the transformatory goals of reparations, which have to include our dispossession and our dispersal around the world, turn the whole world upside down. And we have to educate ourselves as to what reparations are, because it's now a cosmic quest and a, a duty that we have to ensure that repairing the harm similarly transforms, turns the world back where we are living in harmony with ourselves, with our environment, and we ensure that we can have a new humanity that is going to stop once and for all all of these isms and schisms and the continued exploitation and dispossession and enslavement and trafficking of people. So that's what I would say. We have to understand that ultimately whatever we envision reparations to be requires our power. And that power can only be generated by our people in struggle as we struggle to transform our reality. So it's not something we can just sit back and wait and think somebody is going to do for us. That struggle continues. Did we ever leave? <laughs> come, come there. I think it was just a comment. Okay. <laughs> could, could I could I just say one one or two other little things? I very much hope, Mrs. Rodney, that following the uh, inquiry. And, and the report which mm -hmm. is out, mm -hmm. that you will reapproach those insurers, mm -hmm. especially if it's an international company, because the original death certificate mm -hmm. and the original basis on which a reputable company refused um, mm -hmm. to pay, it was just false. Mm -hmm. And even though it's a long time, mm -hmm. it may well be worth um, going back there. And I want to say additionally that um, we live in a world where it might look as if Walter's work is being celebrated everywhere, but that is not true. Um, the universities, the white racist ones, attack him. I went to an event which was organized by our sister here, and a bright young African woman got up and said, Walter's work has been discredited. That event that we had at 3 3, three yeah, right? And so, it's all right in a way you expect it mm -hmm. if bourgeois white people mm -hmm. do it but when black people mm -hmm. who go through those universities mm -hmm. and think they're educated mm -hmm. come out and say that in public forum mm -hmm. and then something even worse happens walters one of the great things about him was the way he combined socialism mm -hmm. and african nationalism mm -hmm. yeah. that's absolutely crucial to him mm -hmm. and marxists are not supposed to be attacking him and I am outraged by the fact that an, a publication called the Review of African Political Economy mm -hmm. found that Arfas, um, South African brother, <laughs> to publish an attack on Walter. Mm -hmm. Now, he's not sacred, you know. Mm -hmm. 
and 40 years after his death, there was the errors that he made and with that legitimate discussion. Mm -hmm. But this journal, a Marxist journal, mm -hmm. allowed this idiot guy who teaches somewhere at SOAS mm -hmm. to publish a false attack on Walter. And I was outraged enough to, to, to write a reply. And I see my comrade Andy, um, who's sitting at the, the, the back somewhere, who spent a whole day shortening it and sending it to the journal. And they published it. <laughs> so, so at least at least it's out there. But the defense of Walter from various lines of attack, none of which have any validity. And when they have validity, we'll all be learning together. But he has to be defended from that foolishness. Thank you. I want to follow up with your comment. Because students, I talked two days ago, I think, the students at SOAS. Yeah. And SOAS uses his name to recruit yeah. African students coming to SOAS. But they're not allowed no. to read Rodney's works. Mm -hmm. And they said there was a Swedish professor who actually stole Rodney's work. And she was talking about his ideas without crediting Rodney. Yeah. And we know that even when Rodney was at SOAS, he had to challenge people. Yeah. Rodney is one of the few, the, the few that got out of um, a SOAS. Because I know two other Guyanese who studied with him. One didn't get his degree at all because his um, advisor wasn't pleased with the topic he was doing. Um, so yes, Rodney is always under attack, either personally or professionally. But we are the ones who have to continue to fight. And that's one of the reasons at my retirement that I felt it's important for me, but it's important for my children and grandchildren. This is their inheritance. Mm -hmm. The name Rodney mm -hmm. must always be respected. I said to my children, your father didn't leave us wealth, but what he left us, no money can buy. That's true. And that's important to me and my family. I'm just coming to you, Andy, and then the young lady there, and just a gentleman afterwards. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've, I've seen it, I never saw it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rodney, for the uh, grace and dignity and clarity which you've told us. Um, so I was a student in the 1970s at Bristol University, Southwest England, white, upper middle class. I first read uh, How Europe Undeveloped Africa in the mid 70s, and changed, changed everything. It's quite important that Europeans know how Europe mm -hmm. underdeveloped yeah. Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what SOAS is actually, is a continuation, it's the other side of neocolonialism. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a continuation of a neo-colonial attitude here in the center of power. Mm -hmm. And I want to compliment uh, what Sister Esther and what Brother Cecil said, because we have a political fight on our hands mm -hmm. about the legacy of Walter Rodney. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be anti-imperialist, mm -hmm. to be against European imperialism today, mm -hmm. in our world today? And I do take great heart from the young people who don't come from that angle, but are converging with it because of their concern for the environment. Mm -hmm. We stood outside with a group of uh, school strikers just yesterday, uh, Friday, 
outside the Shell building at Waterloo. Mm -hmm. These were youngsters from South London, 15, 16 year olds, who want to save the planet. Mm -hmm. And where they go is the Shell building. And they're quite right. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely right. Because there will be repetition unless we destroy the power of these huge multinational corporations. I mean, two of the biggest five oil companies in the world are here in London. Three of the seven biggest mining corporations are here in London. Mm -hmm. This is the center of neo-colonial imperialist power. And I say, bring it on. Bring Walter Rodney here into the heart of London. Bring him to the youth. Can I just point out that the comrade who just spoke is the man who edited down my my, <laughs> my piece for, for publication in the great Marxist journal. Some respects, um, even in the end, we did have to um, to learn about Dr. Romney. Um, the other question is a question and also comment is um, how do we um, take to task our leaders who um, do a sort of as part of this external exploitation and uh, benefit in, in in the form of kickbacks? Um, sort of continue the exploitation um, and encourage the exploitation, how do we take them to task? Yes, they need to read um, works like Dr. Rodney, how to prevent the external exploitation, but they also benefit the billions that we have um, <laughs> uh, funneled away in the UK and other um, European banks. And as a Guyanese, I also worry that this is going to happen um, as part of the oil um, development. So I would really would, would like to hear from you guys um, how 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 we take them to task um, to prevent their collusion, so to speak. Um, <laughs> the support of the foundation. Um, what, as I talked about the legacy project, and we have other projects, so people can help us through donating a, to a specific project. The legacy project spans everywhere that Rodney has traveled, so that we need resources to hire. For example, Rodney's period in London is very significant. It's political work, but also 
while he was here, he was on the surveillance yes. all during that time. And that's an excellent project um, for a young researcher, graduate student to take on. But that requires somewhere uh, affiliation with a university and getting some grant money um, to support that kind of work. Collecting information, I mean, lots of people in here know Rodney. Um, but getting to them to talk about those stories, recording those stories, that in itself takes some resources. Um, the archives are there. Um, students' fellowships are important um, in terms of university giving students grants to come and look at the records in Atlanta. Um, petitioning the government on the COI report because that's an important tool for the foundation. Um, the, what else is it? I think those are the key things uh, about supporting the foundation. Um, just donating, there's a, a donation page on the foundation and your donation, you can be specific about what you want your resources to go to. What is a legacy project? We also work with a phenomenal group out of Africa. It's a regional group. It's called Young African Leaders Fellowship. And these are young people from all over the continent. And last year, I spent time with them in Nigeria. They do a lot of entrepreneurs, skills building, women's resource centers. So. That's a group that we support through the foundation. Um, oh, perhaps expertise again in um, helping us with the website, the foundation website, so your contribution can go towards maintaining. The foundation is run at the moment by volunteers and the family. So we don't have grants. We don't have grants for two reasons. One reason is I will not take money from some corporations, blood money. Mm -hmm. I can't do that and then do Rodney's work. And it puts a lot of burden on us because my youngest daughter, who is an attorney, she does a lot of the legal work and we depend on students or other academics who help us to do some of the work. So the foundation doesn't have a lot of resources. Um, but we try to make sure that we are very particular about where the money comes from or else it will defeat why we're doing the work we're doing. Um, yes. Um, the other thing, the other question I would say that we elect politicians but we don't hold them accountable to anything. They get our votes. I see it all the time everywhere. They come around when it's time for you to vote for them and you never see them again. People have to be accountable. They have to be accountable. They have to tell you what they're doing. With all the backwardness in the states, my representative for my area, if I write him a letter, call him up and say there's a problem, they respond, I'm amazed, don't matter what it is. I could say the trash is not being emptied. He'll write a perfect letter on his letterhead because he realizes that your vote counts. Not because he wants to respond to me, but you know he's coming up for election. You have to vote for him. Yes, so you have to hold 
the government and the people you elect accountable. Thank you. I mean, the crucial thing is not to expect easy answers about what to do yes. from people like us up here, <laughs> right? Walter's life shows that you have to work mm -hmm. at what you, you know, have to get a commitment to, you know, black people's interests, working class people's interests, women's interests, and you have to prepare to work in an organized way on that. So you have to prepare to master the area of, of, of interest and to pursue it on a properly organized basis with other people. Now, I'm not Guyanese, and I know that, that, that there are problems. Mm -hmm. So too many Guyanese um, are compromised mm -hmm. on the issue of race, and they think that somehow they have a vested interest in defending the PNC, <laughs> and they can't pursue them on what they did to Walter, and it, 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 it's an issue that somehow has to be left to one side mm -hmm. because we have to defend ourselves against them, Indian and them, mm -hmm. and so on. It don't really go so, you know. And to the and 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 to the extent and to the extent that we remain trapped in 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 that cruel, terrible vortex that it's actually the white people who invented in the early 50s um, when they invaded Guyana to overturn uh, uh, an African and, and, and Indian um, party and then to organize. They put a lot of effort into driving Africans and Indians apart. And we need to know that history and we need to know the extent to which we've been victims of it. And those people who facilitated Burnham and facilitated his murder, assassination of, 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 of Walter, you have stuff to answer to yourselves about what has happened and whether you can still let it continue to happen in the way that it has done, right? Um, even Guyana speaks. I, I was leafleting outside of this very place about two years ago because the president was here and people came respect, respectfully and you have to be respectful, but the president is, is the head of that same entity that murdered Walter. And questions have to be asked, you know. So, hello, hello, so, no, I'm not accusing people, right? I'm saying mm -hmm. that it matters, and that these things have to be faced. And how we end up compromised in relation to these matters if we don't ask ourselves questions, hard questions, and answer them honestly, we remain compromised, and we contribute to the wickedness that. The people who run our various places, whether it's Guyana or Jamaica or Trinidad and Tobago or, Ga or, or Ghana or wherever, we, we're complicit in that. And nothing will change if we remain complicit with it. Just for the record, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to go to the five people who've already indicated, and that'll have to be it. So the gentleman over there, um, Sid, Uncle Bill over there, you're all right? 
Okay. Um, so I'm out of room for that. And then, right. Okay. Hold on. Okay. You can ask him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's out. goes well back into 
post-colonial beyond and into Roman times. The question here is, today, the word we was in everybody's presentation. She got to the up, talked about the delay of minds, which don't become enriched if you continue to say we. You have to move it on beyond what the we and who are the we and make it something of the children of the we. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm not going to do all five, so I just got one more, Amanda. Please. I'm so sorry to everybody else who hasn't been able to ask a question. Thank you very much, um, uh, Dr. Rodney. I just want to thank you for your strength over the last few decades. I don't know where you get it. I grew up with a photo of you at the uh, memorial a week after your husband was assassinated. Um, and you showed me a side of Guyana that I didn't know growing up in Canada. Um, and so you did, did Walter, and I do want to come back to what Cecil was saying. You gave us a list of uh, the family demands. And can I just say, if there are, you know, you mentioned that growing up in the North, people lose a sense of identity. The other side of it is that we're also benefiting from the sacking of Africa and the Caribbean. As Esther pointed out, and I think people need to take sides. Yeah. I would be very blunt, particularly Guyanese communities, my own country, and here. Exxon was yes. the company mm -hmm. that decided that the oil mm -hmm. was at the border, the offshore border between Venezuela and Guyana. Mm -hmm. That was at an accident. They found it right there. Mm -hmm. They did that to play the same tricks that the British used to play. Exactly. Honest. And all I'm saying is if there are any people who want to work on the family's demands in London, please uh, get in touch with Sister Hero or Cecil or myself and Auntie and uh, let's make something happen. Okay? Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Okay, brief responses to that, please, because we are really squeezed for time now. We're going to get chucked out. <laughs> what are the questions? Huh? What was the question? Uh, what was the question was whether I knew that Dr. Devnish had written the paper, yes. But it's not for me, only me, to respond to academics. It's the role of academics everywhere who value Rodney's work to respond. Um, so, yes. No, I, I don't. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm so sorry. I know we really, I wish we had um, a lot more time because. Clearly, there was a lot more. Many of you have many more questions. Um, first of all, can we put our hands together for the panel for being so fabulous and inspiring. Um, genuinely, deeply honoured. Thank you so much, um, all four of you. Um, can we get their email addresses? Yeah. So yeah. Um, just one other um, that's in the process of being developed, and um, David is on the board. We have just um, have developing a relationship between Pluto Educational Trust, and we are arranging to have a Walter Rodney program within the trust. 
Um, so the two people you can relate to in regards to anything to do with the Rodney family is David and Anne Braithwaite. Thank you.